This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. So, you know, when I think of my, um, welcome back to the program, when I think of some of my favorite blue lines in the history of the Stanley Cup, uh, one of the first that I think of is the Philadelphia Flyers 1987, and that is how McCrimmon, Crossman, Marsh, J.J. Daniel would have been the fifth there. And I also think about the Dallas Stars 1999, and it's Hatcher, and it's Zuboff, and it's Matt Fitchuk, and it's my next guest, who's also the uh, co-owner of the uh, Kamloops Blazers. Memorial Cup opens up tonight. Kamloops is hosting, and they'll face off against Patrick Waugh's Quebec Ramparts team. My guest is Daryl Sedora. Daryl, how are you? Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, thanks for having me. Things are going well. Uh, you must be excited. Well, for, first of all, um, excited because your squad is hosting and, and opening up, as is the tradition, against the Quebec Ramparts. And second, um, from a fatherly point of view, watching Dylan play in the Memorial Cup, and that's a tournament you played in. You're an old Kamloops blazer winning the Memorial. Like, how does that... Like, I don't know. I didn't even know how to begin. Like, I'm a hockey dad, too, but nowhere to... You know, my kids aren't even close to having the success of, of yours or owning a junior team. Like, what goes through your mind? like even just thinking about this yeah it's uh it's really uh enjoyable uh it's nerve-wracking <laughs> you know as a player you're able to get out there and kind of control some things too but uh, now you just sit back and watch and watch and you hope for the best so um it's uh it's an exciting time i mean uh it's emotional time too you know, like just being um you know opening ceremonies yesterday at uh at the powwow to come up, um, you know, I got emotional three times. It's, it means a lot, you know, uh, this uh, Memorial cup is a Stanley cup of junior hockey and to be able to have, uh, your yeah. team a part of it. And also, uh, obviously have a, your son part of it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's enjoyable. You won it in 1992. Uh, you played with the Kamloops Blazers. <clears throat> how has, um, how has both the, the Blazers team, the city of Kamloops and the Memorial Cup tournament itself changed since you won it. Oh, it's, uh, you know, this has been over a year in the preparation to, uh, to bring it where, where it is today. And, uh, you know, yet last night was our opening ceremonies and then our opening kickoff with the glorious sons that came in and played and in the Molson house. And it was, uh, it's a lot of work. So when you talk about you know it's one of the questions i have for a lot of the alumni here at old gm and stuff like how was it back then you know as players you're just engulfed in the in the process and you just play the game but there it's a it's a big big thing now um there's a lot of preparation and there's lots uh, lots to do and it's a show for the city and the city's gonna enjoy it how many people from we always wonder about championship teams and that produces you know lifelong friendships uh when you look back at that 92 Kamloops team that one that you were such a big part of who do you still keep in touch with who are you still close with and you know is it true you know the old Fred Shearer line with the Philadelphia Flyers uh gentlemen if we win tonight we walk together forever um who from that 92 team is is still close to you yeah, you know it's uh, it's amazing. We still uh, have contact with a lot. Um, we've lost some, um, uh, but uh, you know it's uh, we still have a, we have contact with all of them. And uh, you know, especially now with having the Memorial Cup, a lot of reach back out. And uh, you know, I think we have about 48, 49 alumni coming back from all eras, and uh, and the '92 team. So um, you know, it's an exciting time, but, uh, you know, that, that saying is also, it's, it's so true. You know, you walk together as a, 
as a championship team and that friendship and that bond never changes. You know, th- this year in the Western Hockey League, like I'm, I'm in Ontario and a lot of people like in Ontario, when it comes to the OHL, people are used to, to blockbuster trades around deadlines. Same thing as the QMJHL. Historically, the Western League has been a little bit more conservative, although that is you know, that started to change a couple of years ago with teams loading up. And then this year, it went crazy. Like, just to, just to be blunt, whether it was yourselves and Seattle and, and Winnipeg, and you pulled off the, the massive deal for, for, yeah, for, for Olin Zellweger. Like, yeah. what, what happened this year in the Western Hockey League? Because we all looked at these deals and said to ourselves, what is going on in the West? Like, this is a completely different vibe than we're used to, Daryl. Yeah, it's uh, the market has changed. You know, I also look back and ask those GMs, like, how did Camus win three and four years? You know, um, because yeah. I don't think that can happen now. Just the, with the way it way, way it goes, you know, with teams loading up, you know, we have a lot of 19 year olds that you know you're only allowed three 20 year olds next year. So, you know, how do you keep that core? You don't. And uh, yeah, the market changed, and uh, to be in the mix, you know, you, the the asking price was the asking price, and other teams knew it. So, um, you know, you hopefully get your best fit that could uh, fit your with your team well and gel and obviously Seattle also um, a lot of high, uh, high power over there that, um, you know, at the end of the day, there's one puck. So you want to make sure you get a good kid too, um, that understands the team game and championship game. It's about team. So, um, you know, it's, uh, the markets change for sure. Um, but to try and keep up and be in the process and to have that opportunity, uh, you kind of have to do it. You know, I, I should mention as well, as you mentioned, Seattle is part of the Memorial Cup this year. Um, also from the Quebec League, the Quebec Ramparts, and from the Ontario Hockey League, the Peterborough Pete. So, like, th- this is one where you're seeing, like, some really historic franchises. I mean, the Kamloops Blazers are certainly deep in history, as are the Thunderbirds. Um, the Ramparts, you know, trace their lineage back, you know, decades, as do the Peterborough Peets, uh, who are in the conversation for having produced the most players into the NHL. Uh, you're facing off against Quebec tonight. And you know you look behind the bench, and you see Patrick Waugh, and that's someone that you competed against in the uh, in the yeah. NHL. And I know everyone's all grown up and has to be more mature now and have to be professionals. But what was it like competing against Patrick back in the uh, back in the nineties? Yeah, I mean that was outstanding. Obviously, you're going to going to, against a uh, a world class goalie and what Patrick's done in his career. Obviously, um, you know, and to be able to see him, uh, obviously, it was thrilling. Um, you know, I didn't, I don't, I never played with him or got to, got to know him, but, um, you know, to see him actually, what's really cool is, uh, giving back to the kids and coaching the team, um, For sure. is really neat. You know, I think that's, uh, that's important. And, uh, that's the love of the game, right? That's, uh, the love of the game that, uh, a lot of players have, uh, you know, my age or a little bit older is, uh, is giving back. So it's, it's really cool to see, um, <clears throat> a caliber of, of of guy like that in Patrick, uh, you know I love watching press conferences and stuff like that. I'm so I'm so into that kind of stuff because I know there's a game that is played from the coach's standpoint. So I'm excited to see it this this week. Yeah. You know, speaking of uh, of Patrick, and uh, we think about 1993 in the Stanley Cup final, and uh, I, I've mentioned this to you before. 
Um, maybe you're going to roll your eyes when I bring it up once again, but it's, it's one of my favorite Stanley Cup highlights, and I really like it, and it's so subtle, and it's led to this great mystery, and I do have an update on it. I've directed people <laughs> okay. to the closing moments of the 93 final where you, you have the puck on your stick. You just come out. I think you circled around Kelly Rudy, and you got the puck on your stick, and instead of firing it down the ice, I don't know if you said to yourself, no one's getting this puck. Um, I'm frustrated we didn't win the Cup, and you fired it up into the stands at the old Montreal Forum. That puck is lost. No one knows where it is. I checked with a couple of people at the Hockey Hall of Fame. They don't have it. That is the puck now. And it's, it's, it's the, the last puck from a Canadian team to win the Stanley Cup. That puck has completely vanished. You have to be like the, the ultimate hockey sleuth to try to find out where this thing is. Like, I have no idea where it is. The Hockey News has no idea. The Hockey Hall of Fame has no ideas. Like, wow. I, I'm sure at the moment you didn't even think about it, but here I am bringing it up so many years later that that is the puck from the last time a Canadian team won the Stanley Cup. How many times over the course of your life have you thought about that moment, or is it only when I bring it up? It's actually only when you bring it up, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, the spur of the moment and things are happening, you're not, you're up, you know, obviously upset. It's just like, you know, kind of, yeah. we're out of here, you know? So, um, yeah. Well, that's the mystery. That's the mystery of 93, I guess, eh? Um, hopefully that puck it's turns one of the up big, somewhere. It's one of the big ones. Hopefully it turns up in the Hockey it's, Hall it's, of Fame. Yeah, it's, it's a big part of history. So th- then I'm curious, when, when you won the Stanley Cup with, with Dallas in 1999, because there, there are so many players, I mean, there are so many guys that get close and get to the final and lose and never make it back. And I always think about those players, you know, at the, you know, the, 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 the closing night of the season, you know, the, the team that loses, like there's, like I always go back and forth. Is it worse to lose in the Stanley Cup final or is it worse to lose in the first round? Because, man, losing right at the end, like that's a real tough one and you may never get back there. You did a couple of times with Dallas, uh, with Tampa, you know, you won, won the Stanley Cup. Uh, what was it like winning it in 1999 after having gotten there, you know, uh, looked real good early against the Montreal Canadiens, uh, but then fell yeah. to the Habs. What was it like winning it in 99? Yeah, well, it was, obviously it was very special, but, you know, 92, 93, when we lost to Montreal, um, you know, in LA, we never made the playoffs again for, four years, I think it was, or five years, you know, and, and I look back at that as like, you know, Dave Taylor, uh, Kelly Rudy, a lot of the older guys that never had another opportunity. And, uh, you know, in Dallas, when I went there in 95, 96, you know, we kept losing in the uh, conference finals and we couldn't beat Detroit. And, you know, you learn yeah. from your, let's say mistakes or whatever they are, but you learn from your experiences and we were able to get over that hump in 99 and then go back in 2000. But, you know, a lot of the, a lot of teams, if I don't, if you look back at history, if you, if you're Googling and stuff like that, you know, a lot of these teams um, have, have that heartache and uh, are able to get back that next year. And it seems like there's a window, right? If you, if you lose and there's that little window yeah. nowadays, um, you know, the, that learning experience of what it is or what it takes, it's some, you know, it, there is a special thing to, for a championship team to, uh, to win a Stanley cup. 
You know, we're uh, we're watching Dallas extend the series um, uh, against the Vegas Golden Knights. We'll have a game Saturday, uh, a, a game five. Great performance last night by by the Dallas Stars, led by Jake Ottinger. And I'm thinking about you this morning. I my producer, like, hey, Daryl Sedaro's coming on. This is going to be great. And one of the things that I've always wanted to ask you is, and I reference this off the topic. I love that '87 Mont- uh, Philadelphia Flyers blue line. Just loved it. Um, and and listen, man, right in here is your 1999. You know yourself and Richard Matvichuk and Darian Hatcher and. And Sergei Zuboff was that? I know. I know. Maybe it's it's tough to give them, you know, a uh, you know a gold and a silver and a bronze here. But was that the best blue line you ever played on? Yeah, it was a it was a really good blue guy uh, blue line. We had Sean Chambers and Craig Ludwig too. Um, you know, great leadership there helping us out. You know, we were obviously a younger core, but um, <clears throat> you know, we were we were an outstanding. Uh, it was it was fun to play. You know, and I think from the coaching staff standpoint, from Rick Wilson, who was our D coach, he couldn't, you know, he trusted and he could throw anybody together and anybody out there. We had pairs, but in a game, you're always kind of moving around and people were pretty open to doing that. So, you know, and also, and also in Tampa, you know, we had uh, Pavel Kubina and, and Boyle and, you know, these guys, I mean, we had a fairly good, uh, usually, I mean, you know, championship teams have, have pretty good defensemen and pretty good teams. But looking back at Dallas, uh, we were together for quite a long time. Um, you know, was it yes. uh, four years or so that we were together uh, before we won, I think? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were close. We were tight. We were our own little team back there type thing, um, you know, within the team. So, you know, looking back at that and, and you know, always talking. And when we get together, it's, uh, you know, it's just like it was yesterday. Uh, absolutely. Um, some great memories you guys made. Uh, on that, we'll wrap. Listen, good luck tonight against the Ramparts. Good luck the entire Memorial Cup Memorial Cup tournaments. Uh, best of luck to the Sidor family and best of luck to the Blazers. Thanks so much, Daryl, right, well, for stopping by and indul- in, indulging me in my, my goofy 93 puck story again. I, I'll, I'll let it well, drop. If now. you ever do find out about the puck, please reach out and let me know. <laughs> I'll let you know right away. Thanks, Daryl. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, guys. There is uh, Daryl Sador. Uh, he's one of the co-owners of the Kamloops Blazers. Uh, son Dylan plays on the team as well. Memorial Cup starts this evening. It is uh, the Kamloops Blazers opening up against the Quebec Ramparts, who are coached and managed by Patrick Waugh, which uh, is a name that we've started to hear pop up in various coaching circles. Columbus, New York Rangers, played with Drury, won a cup. Uh, that's going to be an interesting name when the Memorial Cup is done with the coaching vacancies. All right, uh, we'll hit a break. Speaking of ex-Kamloops Blazers, Devin Dubnik stops by. Former NHLer, former Kamloops Blazer. Uh, we'll talk about some of the goaltenders uh, around the uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs right now that we see and his thoughts on what we've seen so far through the uh, for the first couple of series. Devin Dubnik in moments. Luke Fox at the bottom of the hour. What's next for the Maple Leafs? Who knows? Hour 2 is coming up next. Covering the Blue Jays from an analytical perspective. Jays Talk Plus with Blake Murphy. Be sure to subscribe and download Jays Talk on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. 
Hey, welcome back to the program. I want to thank Daryl Sador for stopping by, co-owner of the uh, Kamloops Blazers of the Western Hockey League. Uh, Kamloops hosting this year. Uh, the Memorial Cup gets underway tonight. It is the Kamloops Blazers and the Quebec Ramparts. Patrick Waugh's squad. Or should we say it's Justin Robida's squad. So Joey Kenward just sends me a text here, my good buddy from Vancouver, um, about father-son combinations at the Memorial Cup this year. And, you know, Daryl talked about Dylan, uh, his son who plays uh, with the Kamloops Blazers, but also uh, for Seattle, Tij Ginla, Jerome Ginla's son. Jerome won the Memorial Cup in 94 and 95. We mentioned uh, Daryl won the Memorial Cup in 92. Uh, Chase Stillman plays for the Peterborough Peets. Uh, his father, Corey Stillman, uh, lost the Memorial Cup for Peterborough in 1993. And as I mentioned, Justin Robida who is Stefan Robida's son. Um, Stefan never made the uh, Memorial Cup. Uh, he played with Shawinigan, uh, but he'll be watching his son compete for the Quebec Ramparts as they open up tonight against the Kamloops Blazers. It, it's always one of my favorite tournaments, and it always has been. Ever since I was a kid and some of my earliest uh, hockey memories, as a matter of fact, uh, we're watching the old Hamilton Finn Cups compete for the, uh, for the Memorial Cup to say nothing of the new Westminster Bruins. Uh, and I always think of Kelly Rudy because Kelly's got about a million stories about the New Westminster Bruins, and Kelly played for the Medicine Hat Tigers, and they're a really young team, and New West was uh, an older team and a tougher team and a bigger team and a stronger team and a team with guys with long hair and mustaches and all drove Camaros and <laughs> beat you up and take your per diem. Uh, just memories as a kid of watching the the New Westminster Bruins and uh, the Hamilton Finn Cups, who seemed to be in the Memorial Cup when I was a kid. It's my memory that they were always in the uh, the Memorial Cup tournaments, and I had the real uh, the real honor for a number of years uh, to be able to host it when we were doing uh, the CHL on Sportsnet uh, up up until a couple of years ago. Um, you know, some real special moments were hosting the 100th anniversary in Regina. Um, and what made that one real special was before the tournament began, um, the Eagles opened it up, a big concert, the Eagles and some of the players from the Humboldt Broncos, uh, were there and it was uh, just a really wonderful celebration of just to be quite blunt, a celebration of being alive. And it was the kids and it was their parents and it was fun and dancing and drinks and tears and hugs and all of it. Um, had a lot of fun with a lot of Memorial Cups. Red Deer was a great Memorial Cup. Windsor uh, was another great Memorial Cup that I got to be part of. Um, London, uh, when the Oil Kings upset Guelph, that was a, a huge one. I was really lucky to be part of as well. And Quebec City, you know, one of the things that I've always hung my hat on, like whenever anyone asks me, like, what, what's some of the cooler things you've ever been able to do um, in hockey or some of the cooler things you've ever been able to see? One of the things that's always up at the top of my list is uh, hosting the Memorial Cup when it was at the Coliseum because that was, you know, those were the last games uh, ever at that old historic barn, one of the great uh, hockey barns of all time. You know, the Videotron Center is now beside it, and that's a world-class facility where the Ramparts play now and much bigger and much more state-of-the-art than the Coliseum was. But the Coliseum had that charm, right? Like the Coliseum, you think of all those great French-Canadian hockey players that went through and you think you know you you look at the you look at the ice and you look at the stands and you say like you know Gila Fleur played here you know it was like the first time that I went to the Galt Arena and I first thing that uh, that 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 jumps out at you is 
know, Gordy Howe skated here. You know, it's like when I went to a Chicago Cubs game for the first time, and you think about all the historical figures that played baseball here. And for me, being able to host the Memorial Cup at the Coliseum, uh, that was a tournament that was won by the Oshawa Generals. Um, that was real special. And that Oshawa Generals team, DJ Smith was the coach. Um, uh, Anthony Sorelli was the overtime hero for the Oshawa Generals, uh, really helped, you know, change his career trajectory and, and got him on a lot of people's minds on a lot of hockey maps as well. Uh, they beat the Kelowna Rockets, who were led by uh, a couple of people you might have heard about by now, namely Leon Dreisaitl and Josh Morrissey. Like, really, really special tournament. And just, you know, watching Anthony Sorelli score the last goal ever at the Coliseum, and you think about all the famous goals that have been scored there and all the big hockey players that have ever scored significant goals at the Coliseum, and Anthony Sorelli of the Tampa Bay Lightning was the last. And I remember leaving the Coliseum at that Memorial Cup tournament and, you know, turning back and, you know, going back, uh, back inside the rink and just walking around. And I remember going to Quebec Nordiques games. I got to go to see a couple of, um, a couple of Nordiques Montreal Canadiens games there. And, you know, they were as entertaining and, and rough as you would imagine. Um, and just soaking it all in, taking about a million pictures on my phone as well, which I've stored on my laptop here, that every now and then I just go back and, and, and think about it and, and go back and, and think about the, the Colisee and how much of a great hockey memory that was. And it's probably my favorite Memorial Cup of, of all time. Although Regina was great, Red Deer was great, Windsor was great. These are just the ones that I had the opportunity to work. Uh, there have been some glorious uh, Memorial Cups over the over the years. And uh, we cross our fingers and hope that this year's edition is just as good. Again, it is the host Kamloops Blazers, um, the Seattle Thunderbirds, who are a wagon, an absolute wagon of a team. Uh, the Quebec Ramparts representing the QMJHL and the Peterborough Peets. Uh, who represent the Ontario League, who knocked off the London Knights to get there. Um, the Quebec Ramparts knocked off the Halifax Mooseheads. Uh, one thing I want to announce as well, not announce, but one thing I want to mention, the announcement was made on, on social media on Marie-Philippe Poulin's uh, Instagram. Congratulations to Hockey's New Power Couple, as uh, Marie-Philippe Poulin and uh, teammate Laura Stacy, longtime partner, uh, announced their engagement uh, on social media. Congratulations to... Uh, to both uh, Marie-Philippe Poulin and Laura Stacey, who pretty much automatically go to the top of the list uh, when you look at hockey power couples uh, in Canada. And when their careers are done, uh, they will be involved uh, in hockey in a very significant capacity off the ice, on the ice. Their stories are certainly well told, and their position in, in hockey history is already established. But, you know, when it comes to someone like Marie-Philippe Poulin, like I, I'm of the mind that, now, know this for a fact, but I, I believe this is kind of how the conversation went with Marie-Philippe Poulin and the Montreal Canadiens. Something along the lines of, we just want you here. Just, you know, we're, we're just going to hire you and we'll figure out what you can do next. Uh, because Marie-Philippe Poulin can do a lot of things uh, in an organization. And it, it's pretty obvious that the the Montreal Canadiens, you know, when, when her career is all said and done, just want to get her in uh, under the tent, um, but there's still much more hockey in her future. Um, and that includes a professional league, 
Um, the uh, the professional women's hockey league, as I've I've talked about before, none of this has been official. This is all just sort of rumors and, and piecing things uh, together. But it it looks very much and sounds very much. Although everybody right now is NDA'd, and unlike in Ottawa, everybody around this are respecting their NDAs, <laughs> and nobody is talking uh, about what this this league is gonna is gonna look like. But it sounds as if the uh, the, the the CBA is. I don't know if it's completed yet, but they've been marching towards completing it for a while. Um, I've reported that it looks like probably a January start next season um, for the uh, the Professional Women's Hockey League, formerly the PWHPA. I think that I've, I've reported before that the PWHPA will probably uh, be the name of the Players Union, etc. Marie-Philippe Poulin, Laura Stacey, they will both uh, be big parts of it. Um, and again, congratulations uh, to Hockey's Power Couple, Marie-Philippe Poulin, and Laura Stacy, congratulations on their engagement. Um, a couple of things. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty thrilled that now I have some hockey to watch on Saturday night because the thoughts of going through an entire weekend at this time of year and not being able to watch a hockey game, well, I wasn't really a fan of that. But nonetheless, congratulations to the Dallas Stars. And thank you to the Dallas Stars for very much making this a series. Um I don't think we know what's going to happen, or I don't know that we really have a, a, a sense of how much of a series the Dallas Stars are going to make this thing, but does it not seem to you that the Dallas Stars will make this as much of a series as Jake Ottinger decides it will be a series? Hear me out on this one. There's a lot of good players on this Dallas Stars team. Miro Haskinen is elite and we talk about Norris remorse when the balloting is all revealed there will be some people who will sheepishly say eh I should have had him in my top five or eh even if I did have him in my top five he still should have been higher he is amongst the elite in the NHL that's not exactly a secret Joe Pavelski is one of the clutchiest players that ever clutched and you saw that in game four Uh, Jason Robertson is really starting to fire it uh, Rupe Hins, to me, much like Rangers fans talk about how Mika Zibanejad is the forgotten superstar, the uh, the forgotten first-line center that nobody talks about. You can say the same thing about Rupe Hins with that skill set, that size, and those wheels. And it's always stunning just visually to watch a guy that big skate that fast and that fluid to say nothing of what's happening down the lineup uh, as well, like this is a really impressive Dallas Stars team. But as we've seen before, if Jake Ottinger's not there, or if the uh, the Jake Ottinger we saw in Game Three shows up, and he's been pulled a number of times in these playoffs, uh, we're not going to a Game Six. But if the Jake Ottinger that we saw last night shows up, then I think we really got a series here. Now, make no mistake about it, Vegas Golden Knights are an outstanding organization, top to bottom. At every single position, um, this is a squad that is impressive, and I think we all look at them and say, this team could win the Stanley Cup. Like in a series against the Florida Panthers, and the winner of these two teams is going to get end up playing the Florida Panthers. You look at the way the Vegas Golden Knights would have matched up about uh, against just about anybody coming out of the East, and you could say to yourself, I can see them at least being competitive and B, probably winning. That's how good this team is, even with Aiden Hill. Now, Aiden Hill, you know, every year there, there seems to be, you know, one goaltender that pops and maybe you say it was Jake Ottinger last year with Dallas in that series against the Calgary Flames. But everybody, and I count myself as, as one of these people, 
when Logan Thompson went down, we were all like, oh, all that great work by Vegas, all of it is going to be undone because they don't have the goaltender because there were legitimate and significant questions about Aiden Hill. But don't look now, but more times than not, Aiden Hill has outdueled Jake Ottinger. Now, you could listen to me pontificate about goaltenders, or we could actually talk to one uh, who is an exceptional net miner, is turning himself into an exceptional analyst uh, with the NHL network. And, you know, we're coming off an interview with Daryl Sador. And so, from one Kamloops Blazer to uh, another, please welcome uh, to the Jeff Merrick Show the one and only Devin Dubnik of NHL Network. Devin, how are you today? Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, good thing. Thanks for having me. Quite the intro. Uh, the. Uh, well, you know what? I got to got to big it up. It's Kamloops Blazer Day. It's uh, Kamloops is opening up the Memorial Cup tonight against the Quebec Ramparts, coached by Patrick Waugh, et cetera, et cetera. Let me before we drill down on on, yeah. on goaltenders here in the uh, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Just your memories of playing in Kamloops. Your your memories of playing with uh, with the Blazers. Your memories of playing in the Western League. Yeah, I mean, I I tell stories about that all the time. Just uh, uh, crazy how young you are when you start to go out there and, and uh, you know, we get boys now, they're getting older. My, my oldest is nine. And, I mean, the thought of him just leaving to go somewhere since seven years is, like, <laughs> not okay with me. But that's what, that's what I did. And, uh, yeah, you go off. And, and, I mean, what a, what a great junior town, though, uh, to be a part of both with the history and just the beautiful part of the country great fan base beautiful rink too um really good yeah. size for a junior upgrade you know, it, it, it really is such yeah we're, we're Devin, we're gonna give you a call back here you're we're kind of got you on a bad line here lance if we could if we could try to get Devin back here on a on, on a cleaner line now now Devin dubnik played um with the Kamloops Blazers for let me just check here I think it was four years one two yeah he played the three years before it is after the Bantam draft so he played essentially four years with the uh with the Kamloops Blazers with a first round draft pick of the Edmonton Oilers in in 2004 and when you think about great junior hockey towns um like towns that are sort of built for junior hockey specifically there there are a lot of them and Kamloops has always been one of those ones uh, very historic certainly but that's always been one of the ones that's that's on the map uh, in Ontario you'll think of the London Knights uh, for example or the Windsor Spitfires uh, in the Quebec League you'll think of the Quebec Ramparts you'll think of Ramouski you'll think of St. John uh, you'll think of Halifax, and in the the Western Hockey League, there's there's no shortage of them. And you know the Regina Pats, you know, stretch back as you know the longest team, the longest serving team, and you know what's now known as the the entire CHL, and have sent player after after player after player, and they're about to send another one to Connor Bedard into the NHL. But you know the Kamloops Blazers have have put some significant talent over the years in the NHL. Devin Dubnik is one of them. Uh, for my money, one of the best lines that I ever saw in junior hockey, hands down, full stop, uh, was Jerome McGinley, Darcy Tucker, and Shane Doan. That was one of those lines where when they had the, when they were on the ice, nobody else touched the puck. I mean, you look at you know you look at uh, Scotty Niedermeyer coming out of that organization as well. So no shortage of talent and no shortage of names. Sorry, Devin, kind of uh, had, a, had a faint line there. So can you can you just pick up your thought quickly on on Kamloops as a junior hockey town? Yeah, no, I was saying it's a um, beautiful part of the country, 
know, nice, good-sized town for a junior team. The rink was beautiful. Yeah. It was, it's just the right size, right around 5,000 people. I'm not sure how much they've done to it since. Um, but really cool spot. I was very lucky to end up in Camloops with the history there as well and really good fan base. And, and like I said, I mean, interior BC is is as beautiful as you get so i was uh, very lucky and still you know my parents my family was able to drive and come see me kind of once a month it was a little bit of a hectic drive in the winter but it was doable you know i always think of and i have a soft spot in my heart for scouts um there's some of the best people in the world um there's some of the most you know underappreciated people in the world a lot of them are on contracts that are just year to year and and i think i'll tell you Devin. I think a lot about Western Hockey League scouts, and I think about those drives, and yeah. i got to go see this guy play for a period here, and then I'm going to drive through a blizzard to watch two periods over here, and then I'm going to stay at a crappy motel, and I wake up, I'm going to drink some bad coffee and go watch two games or three games in two nights over here. I'm not going to see my family for two weeks. You know, when you think about some of the people that help keep that, that entire, you know, Western Loop machine going... Uh, for me, I've always had a soft spot for Western Hockey League scouts. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, just the, like you said, the travel is hard to even describe properly. Um, yeah. You know, nothing is that close. Plus, you're driving through the mountains. You so I mean, weather is can be anything at any time. Uh, just crazy yep. travel, and like you said, I'll just see one period. But I know, like. Like the the scouts that I spoke with with Camloops and both before I was drafted during the draft process and getting there, I mean they're some of the best people. They they care. They truly truly care. Yeah. And you know I talked to them for a very long time after I was done playing in Camloops and the work these guys put in uh, is pretty crazy. For I mean getting paid, I'm assuming almost nothing. You know, they're doing it because they love it, and, and it's a huge, important part, like you said, to keep that Western League train rolling. Yeah, and uh, they all stand in the corner, and they all wear black, and I love what Colby and Armstrong, because they, they wear, I would ever go to games with Colby, but I always go and talk to the scouts, and I'll be wearing black pants and black jacket, and Colby Armstrong would <laughs> refer to that as the scout fit. Like, hey, boys, you got your scout fits on. I see you got the good scout fits there. You want to mix in a color a little bit here and there, boys? I always love that about uh, about Colby. <laughs> hey, real real quick question before we get to the goalies here. You're um you know you're drafted by the Edmonton Oilers, 2004 first round. That's the Ovechkin draft. Did you know that you were going to Edmonton? I mean, I'm I'm sure you had an idea that they wanted you, but did you know that you were going to Edmonton, or did you think that you were going to end up with like you know Anaheim or Los Angeles or or Buffalo teams that were in the area but before Edmonton? Uh, no, so I, I had a I had an idea that Edmonton was a strong possibility. Um, it's a little different being a goalie, where you kind of only you, you kind of know the teams that are potentially going to pick a goalie, and so it eliminates a lot of the other teams where you just know, you know, these guys right. aren't looking for a goalie right now. So I don't I'm not going to stress over that pick. So it basically was, L.A. picked at 11. Um, you know, as far as where I could potentially fall, I know Montoya got taken sixth overall, but I knew I, I wasn't. Yep. Knew I wasn't going top ten. So it was L.A. at eleven, Edmonton at fourteen, St. Louis at seventeen, 
Um, Calgary was at 24, and um, Vancouver at 25, I believe. And I know that St. Louis, uh, Mary Schwartz, who was a Czech guy. Calgary's 22nd? 26, 26. Okay. Um, yeah, St. Louis took Merrick Schwartz, who was a who was a high prospect uh, Czech guy, and then Vancouver ended up taking Corey Schneider. So I thought there was a pretty good chance I was going to go to L.A. Um, I think what happened is there was a couple off the mark picks, not off the mark, but just uh, not your typical top ten picks. Um, Blake Wheeler was one of them. Actually, he went fifth to yep. uh, Phoenix, I believe. And he was ranked like 50th or something. And it's funny because he was ended up being one of the, well, still playing and is a great player. One of the, one of the best ones out there. And he was like the outlier pick. So that threw, uh, yeah. Lori Tukinen was, I think LA's first prospect that they wanted, but yes. he was supposed to go top 10 and they picked 11 and that bumped him out of the top 10. So LA picked him at 11 and then the next one up for me was Edmonton. Um, I'd had multiple interviews with them, and they'd gone well. And thought it was a, a I thought it was a pretty good chance I was going there. You know, I, I always thought that the, um, I mean, uh, that draft was you know, one of the names where I, I, I think the draft kind of got weird a little bit, where all of a sudden you have to sort of recalibrate your list is when Atlanta took Forrest Balavik. The uh, the big defenseman from the Kitchen Rangers mm-hmm. at at tenth overall. I know I know yeah. everybody wanted a Chara at that point, and I think they looked at Volabic and yeah. Kitchener and said, yeah. "Okay, there's Chara Light. Let's let's try to grab him." But uh, that was you know when you mentioned a couple of you know sort of off the board picks here that kind of threw things that threw a wrench into things. And you're right, Wheeler going to Arizona as high as he did was one at five, uh, but I think the Volabic pick uh, as well was was one of those ones that threw a wrench in that draft. Um, okay, so Devin, when you look around yeah, at the goaltending right yeah, now, we've made ones. a lot about. Oh yeah, there's well there, there I mean there was. Um, uh, I mean, Cam. Cam. I mean, unfortunately, it didn't work out, you know, very well for for Cam Barker in his in his uh, in his career. But yeah. you know, he went uh, third overall. Um, Alexander Picard. Yeah, but he, uh, he sorry, played, play and like I think thing. he had some injuries. But he he like at least played. Yep. Like he was you know he's an NHL player, and then obviously Andrew Ladd had a great career. Uh, Al Montoya, uh, you know, he still had a career. He was backup, but he had a career and. But there was a Alexander Picard, yep. I think, was like eighth overall to Columbus. Never really yep. panned out. Um, and uh, Thielen, twelfth overall to Minnesota. I don't think he. I don't know if he played a game of professional hockey. And then no, uh, there's some other ones. Stafford, Drew Stafford, obviously thirteenth uh, overall, great career. I was fourteen. Radulov was fifteen. So there are a few guys in there. Corey, Corey Schneider went. Uh, there was a few in there, but there was definitely that was the first round where there was uh, certainly no shortage of guys that never really played at all. Yeah, and Andy Rogers with uh, with Tampa at uh, at thirtieth overall, who never ended up yep. playing a game, was a you know huge defenseman playing with the uh, the Calgary Hitmen. Um, we've made a lot yep. about I, Sergey Bobrovsky growing up as well. Yeah. Yeah, I thought he was a good. Pl- I thought he was a good player. I mean, he was big, strong. I mean, to he me, I like that he said the game kind of. The, yeah, and and the game kind of changed. Let me ask you about. Um, yeah. Let me ask you about Sergei Bobrovsky. 
as an as a as a goaltender, what do you see in Bobrovsky here? And and is the Bobrovsky lesson one of I, I guess that the phrase is is load management or or we could just call it, you know, resting during the regular season or giving your athletes time off, specifically your netminders. How do you look at the Bobrovsky phenomenon? Um, well, I don't think it's a phenomenon. I've watched him play like this before. I mean, I've, I've seen him. He was always one of my favorite goalies to watch um, because of his edge work, because of his power that he had, his flexibility. And I've watched him at times in Columbus where – I, he looked just like he does right now. Like he just like like doesn't matter what happens. He's just not going to get scored on when he gets this dialed. And then in Columbus, sometimes he would kind of lose it here and there, and he'd get away from it. But you know, I think the biggest thing is is Florida as a team hasn't been great uh, defensively for the last little while previously until these playoffs, where now they're playing hard. They're playing physical. They're blocking shots. And I think that, you know, I've always said for a goalie, in order to play free and kind of unlock what he's, all of these things that I just talked about, his strength, his edge work, flexibility, all the stuff that he is so gifted with, in order to unlock that and let him play freely, he's got to know what's going on in front of him. He's got to trust what's going on in front of him. And that allows him to react. I mean, you see some of these insane blocker saves that he makes pushing across. But he's not cheating. He's not guessing. He's sitting on the first shot, and when that play is made, you know, then all those assets, all those skills that he has come into play because he trusts that if something happens, that's, you know, that's the only play I've got to worry about. It's either this shot or it's this one play. It's not I feel like the other team has seven guys on the ice, and I've got to be thinking about five different things, and then this guy blows a shot by me. So all of these assets, all these skills for Bob, have always been world-class, and I think that they're just starting to feel good and buy in and play a really strong system in front of him where he trusts what's going on. That certainly doesn't mean that they're not giving up chances by any by any means, because they are, but it's the kind mm-hmm. of chances that you give up and, and how you're structured in front of him that allows him to play free and stop those chances when they do come. You know, when we talk about Russian netminders, one of the things that we always come back to, and you mentioned this, Devin, right off the top, um, that is skating and footwork. Like when I watch Igor Shosturkin, the feet are glorious. When I watch Sorokin, the feet are glorious. When you watch Vasilevsky, the feet are glorious. When you watch Bobrovsky, the feet are glorious. What is it about the way that Russian goaltenders skate? What is it about the training that other countries haven't either noticed, done anything about, or caught up to? Like, what what is it about their skating, from your point of view? So it's, it, <coughs> it's, it's the edge work is what it is. It's their ability. Uh, you know, watch Bob or Sirkin's kind of a uh, freaky anomaly when it comes to that. But if you're, you know, and I wore different skates when I played, but if I'm in a situation where I go down and I need to rotate my my body to get to a better angle on my knees i kind of got to go like heel first and then to my toe to push and when you watch like a shesterkin it's like he puts his foot down and, and you know the blades are shorter than when I, than I when i played but like he puts his foot on the ice and it just like morphs into the angle that he needs to get to and he goes it's like it doesn't 
I mean, obviously it's, it's how he's putting weight on the foot, but I think it's, it's a combination of their strength, their flexibility, because they all have this freaky hip flexibility. You watch them on their, on their posts. Um, that strength and that flexibility allows them to have this edge work that they obviously practice. And other than that, I don't know. <laughs> Cause they're all, <laughs> like, you know, you look at, look at, uh, before obviously Bob wasn't playing, but you had what your top, top goalies in the league or, or you got Vasilevsky, Shesterkin, and I'm, I'm not saying this year, but at any given time, Vasilevsky, Shesterkin, Sorokin, yeah. You got this Kachetkov coming up in Carolina who looks fantastic. Yeah. And you got Bob, and it's like they're all freaks. Yeah. Like I've um I I, I look at them and I I'm glad you brought up the post play as well because I look at them and I say I was having a conversation with Kevin Woodley about this about a month ago. It's like have have they had their hip bones removed? Like I, I don't know like how oh. your body can like m- maneuver into these positions certainly around the post the way the Russian the Russian goaltenders do Devin. Well, it's not just it's not just the like flexibility to be in those positions. It's that they're powerful coming out of those positions. So you're not just they're not just able to put their hips and groins and knees in these like crazy torqued positions, but they're but they're in a way that, like, with their edges, that they're they're able to move out of this thing quickly and powerfully, and like to be able to have strength, mm-hmm. not only the flexibility to get yourself there, but to be in these crazy positions and have the strength to be explosive coming out of it is is crazy. It's 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 wild and it's it's fun to watch. Um, we're we're up against the clock, Devin. Thanks, man, for uh, as always for stopping by. It's uh, it's a Kamloops Blazer kind of day. Uh, Kamloops opening up against Quebec tonight at the uh, Memorial Cup. Uh, thanks so much for stopping by, sharing your memories of being a Blazer, living in in Kamloops, and playing in that great junior hockey city, and your your expertise on on NHL goaltenders. Much appreciated, pal. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, there he is, Devin Dubnik from the NHL Network, former NHL netminder, um, joining us here to talk about, of all things, Sergei Bobrovsky. I was hoping to get to like, Aiden Hill and Ottinger and all that, but the the stuff on on the Russian goaltenders to me is just so fascinating. And you know, I'm I'm sure that in in North America and and elsewhere around Europe as well, there are goalie coaches trying to to scramble to come up with you know how how can we ape what they're doing in Russia right now with all these. Uh, elite level goaltenders, but it really is a thing of beauty watching uh, Russian goaltenders move around the crease. Uh, on that, we'll hit a break. We'll come back and talk about uh, and finish up the program by talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs and, and what's on the horizon for them. Uh, as Elliot has reported, um, it is believed that Brad Treliving has already interviewed uh, for the position of general manager. Um, the list, the remaining list, probably would include names. Um, like Jason Botterill, uh, names like Mark Bergevin, uh, Pichirelli perhaps uh, as well. We'll we'll see, and there will always be a lot of candidates because it's Toronto that uh, that come out of the woodwork. Uh, we'll get on the Toronto Maple Leafs page here in a couple of moments. Luke Fox from Sportsnet.ca stops by. He covers the Maple Leafs for our website, and he joins me next as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. 
big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I was having a laugh the other day. One of my favorite things now when I watch hockey is a goal is scored and then right away the camera cuts to the team bench that just had the goal scored on it. So we can see the tops of the coaches' heads as they look at the iPads to check the zone entry. (laughs) It's become automatic. You will not see a coach's face after a goal anymore. Because all you'll see is looking down at the iPad, watch the zone entry, watch the zone entry. We see a lot of tops of heads these days. Anyway, just as an aside. Welcome back to the program. Merrick along with you. Uh, One more segment here as we wrap up the week and get you all set for the weekend, which will include a game five between the Dallas Stars and the Vegas School of the Knights, courtesy of Joe Pavelski. Uh, Meanwhile, back on the Toronto Maple Leaf page, uh, my good friend Luke Fox joins me now from sportsnet.ca, amongst other things. Uh, What's next for Kyle Dubas? But Luke, first of all, bracket the uh, the Dubas conversation, and I want to open up by asking you the same thing that I asked Elliot Friedman uh, about an hour ago. So it's one week after the bombshell announcement by Brendan Shanahan about the dismissal of Kyle Dubas. Since then, there has been a lot of different stories put forward. There have been a lot of conspiracy theories that have been put forward. Uh, A lot of airtime has been used. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, writing uh, done on this, a lot of typing that's been done on this, a lot of words in digital stone uh, there forever, uh, as we now know um, uh, about the Kyle Dubas situation. But seven days later, what are you comfortable saying you are certain of 100% with the Maple Leafs and this entire situation? Ooh, good question, Jeff, uh, and happy Friday to you. Uh, one thing I know yeah, for certain, one thing I know for certain is that Brad Tree leaving is the only 100% known candidate, and that he's already spoken with Brendan Shanahan. Uh, so mm-hmm. by that measure, he would be the front runner, but I also think it's a hundred percent that we know for sure that he won't be the only one they talk to. Uh, the other thing I, I know for sure is that I, I feel comfortable saying that Austin Matthews won't resign on July 1st and that the new GM, whether it's Trey living or someone else, their top priority should absolutely be the Matthews file and making him feel comfortable and figuring out what his number is going to be so that they can plan the rest of the team around that. But in saying that I'm I'm certain that Matthews won't sign on July 1, I would also say that he very much wants to be a Maple Leaf moving forward. But And I don't think the fact that he was close with Kyle Dubas um, means that he won't develop a strong relationship with his successor and they won't be able to work something out and he won't be happy with the plan. But that right now there are so many things we don't know, to your, to your question, about the Maple Leafs. We're not certain who the coach mm-hmm. is going to be. We're not certain who the GM is going to be. We're not certain what the vision is going to be or how many of the, of the current players are coming back. 
that until Matthews feels comfortable with the plan, he probably won't be putting pen to paper. And I think that's a that's mm. a real big one here. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned Brad Treliving, and then right away we dovetail to the Austin Matthews question and July 1st and the no trade kicks in and, you know, all the power to, uh, to Austin Matthews in that situation. If at the end of all of this it's Brad Treliving who ends up the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs and July 1st comes and goes, does he not, I mean, it's just natural after having gone through what Brad Treliving went through in Calgary, does he not still have, you know, Johnny Gaudreau PTSD? Like, is that not a thing, like, in the back of his mind? Like, man, this happened to me once with Johnny Gaudreau. I can't happen again in Toronto with, with Austin Matthews. Yeah, and I, the way I look at it is I think that's probably a good thing that if they were to hire him or any other GM that's been through something similar with a star player, is you probably you'd like to think you learn from it and take the the good and the bad and, and be a little bit more wary of it um now could a bit different situations in the fact that as of july 1 austin will have a full no move and and can write his own own ticket and orchestrate his own situation um you know we, we've seen players do that in the past you like it, 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 i mean different situation but you think of patrick kane like he was, he basically decided I'm either going to stay here and walk out the door, or I'm going to the New York Rangers. Uh, Kane has passed on the tail end of his prime. Austin is firmly yep. in it. That's the that's the major difference there. But you know, with Johnny Gaudreau, I think if Brad Tree Living could have a, a do-over, um, he probably probably would have seriously considered moving him um, had he known that you know that, that he was walking out the door. I, I really like how up front. Matthew Kachuk's camp was and basically said, look, I I can sign here for one more year and you can walk me out the door or, you know, I want to do right by the franchise. And, and, and I think that's the kind of relationship that Matthew's camp and whoever the new GM want, want to strike up right away and and lay their cards on the table and have a very open relationship in terms of communication, because this is going to be something that's going to define the players you know, second half of his prime, say, if he signs for four or five years. Mm-hmm. And it's going to define the the rest of this window, competitive window for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, you know, you, this is still a very good team, a very good regular season team. We all know they're, they're, they've had their struggles in the, in the postseason, but they don't have to do anything. And they still have Marner, Nylander, Tavares, Matthews under contract for this year. And I think a lot of the players would be mm-hmm. fine with, with just rolling it back. But how you handle that transition to just walking, uh, not just Matthews, but potentially mm-hmm. Nylander out the door for free, that's, that's something very risky. So bringing in a guy like Trey Living, who's just been through a, you know, a different but similar situation, I don't think is a bad call. You know, there's, um, there's, there's one area of this entire Dubas-Shanahan saga that that I, I still think we're all wondering about i don't think he'll ever comment on it like i don't i don't know that let me back up i don't know that we're ever going to hear much more from kyle dubas about his side of what brendan shanahan laid out last week uh, i just don't think that that's in his nature and you know he mentioned in his statement you know he considered those those conversations to be private so i don't know that we get a um a public airing of Kyle Dubas's laundry here. I, I don't know that he does that. 
And I also don't know if Jason Spezza is ever going to really talk about what happened to him and why he decided to resign. And because in, in a lot of situations like this, when the general manager gets dismissed, if you're someone like Jason Spezza, normally, okay, the GM is out. Even if I'm not going to get the big chair, um, I might become the interim general manager, or at least I'm going to move up the ladder at least one rung or maybe two rungs, but it's going to help my career. But instead, Spezza said, you know, peace out, check me out on Facebook. Um, how did you see that situation? I don't know that we've talked enough about the Spezza element of all this. No, you're right. You're probably right that we haven't talked enough about it. The way I saw it, because, you know, as traveling with the team for most of the road games, it's certainly all playoffs, there was seldom an elevator ride that Kyle Dubas took that, that didn't feature Jason Spezza right by his side. You know, a walk down the hallway right by his side. Uh, those two were tied to the hip. Yes, Jason Spezza was employed by MLSE, but, uh, you know, he, he was very much working for Kyle Dubas directly. Um, th- those guys were talking all the time. They had a great relationship. Dubas was the reason that, um, that Spezza was hired in the first place, and you have to wonder the type of salary cap hit that Spezza took late in his playing career, you have to wonder if, if that wasn't the plan all along. Like, you, you take a little less and there'll be a job for you later on. Like, you know, I don't know that for sure, but that that's, you know, I don't think anyone would be surprised if that came to light. Those two are very close. Um, I think they saw hockey the same way. I think they got along. Uh, they took in the games together. Spezza was a hard worker, man. Like, he was, he was pretty invaluable in terms of scouting uh, did some amateur scouting, but also a lot of pro scouting because uh, he wasn't that far removed from these players. And even though, he, even when he was a player, he was he, like, for a reporter like me, I could ask him about anyone in the league. Um, some guys, some players, you ask them about other guys in the league and they're just like, oh, I don't know. I see him once, uh, once or twice a year. I don't really know. But Spezza had one of those minds where it was like, oh yeah, he shoots left and these are his strengths and these are his weaknesses. Uh, like just a, an incredible, like, you know, hockey nerd, but I say that in the best kind of way. So I, I think they, they, I mean, you and I might fall in that category uh, to some degree as well. So, but I, I, I think those guys were, were so linked that um, this was Spezza showing his loyalty. And also I think we, we you know, I, I think there's other people that feel loyal to Dubas and are probably upset within that organization, but they don't have $100 million in yes. the bank like Jason, Jason Spezza. He, he can afford to walk away out of principle. Other people aren't going to quit their jobs just out of principle because they got a family to feed, right? So there's, mm. there's like some, some base, basic you know, nuts and bolts there too. Sure. Uh, I, that, I think that's a, great, that's a great point to pause on, too, because, you know, all through this organization, whether it's with the Maple Leafs, whether it's with the Marlies, I think we can, you know, go right through, uh, right through the employee list and, you know, point out, you know, Dubas loyalist, Dubas loyalist, Dubas loyalist, Dubas loyalist. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you read uh, uh, Jonas Siegel's piece in The Athletic the other day, but, you know, there are yeah. a lot of people that... You know that, that that are stunned and that are shocked, and I'm uh, I'm not sure whether you've come to the same conclusion about you know where they're at and what maybe the Maple Leafs need to do here because there's a lot of stunned people 
in that organization that Dubas brought in, some going back to his days with the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, um, some even previous. You know, you know, I can think of I can think of someone going back to when he was a Brock. You know that uh, that that he that he brought in with uh, with Maple Leafs organization. Like, there are a lot of deep roots in this organization with Kyle Dubas. How much of a how much of a thing do you think that is in the organization right now? Well, I think it's a thing. He was he was there so long, Jeff, that his fingerprints weren't all only all over the roster. It was all over the front office and behind the scenes and trickling down to the AHL. I mean, he was there long enough that most of the hires had become his. Uh, and he was, I think, you know, by all accounts, he was like a great boss to work with, right? He created a very inclusive work yeah. environment. He was collaborative. I know for the players, like, you know, a lot of GMs, it's like you, you, you make your, your negotiation and, and you hardly ever see them. He would, you could see him like having casual conversations with guys, uh, in, you know, in, in the, in the bowels of the, the rink or the practice facility. I know he would email guys articles that they, he thought would inspire them or they would find in, interesting. Like he was very hands-on with his employees and got very close to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most people I think would say that's a great thing, especially for the era we're living in, very progressive. Some might say maybe he was too close and maybe his personal ties to some of these guys were it got to the point where he put loyalty um, or personal relationships over. Am I, am I not being open to all the decisions I can make to make this a better hockey team? That would be the counterpoint to how he ran things. Right. And I wonder if he, he might take a slightly different approach. I don't think he's going to change who he is, but I wonder if he might take a slightly different approach in his next tour, where, whether that's Pittsburgh or where, wherever it is. Um, but mm-hmm. absolutely. I think when, when the guy that hired you and that you liked and he liked you and he knew you and he knew your strengths and he, and he saw a vision for how you would progress within the company. Um, when he disappears, there's a feeling of, Oh no, how does that affect me? How does that affect the work culture? Yeah. And I don't even think this has to do with a hockey team. I think the same thing would happen at Rogers or the, the restaurant you work at, or where I think it's more of an employment yeah. thing. That when, when the head person that goes, especially if they are the one that gave you your last raise, when they disappear, of course there's a sense of panic or questioning, where do we go from here? And Brendan Shannon, Shanahan even alluded to that when he spoke a week ago. Is there, um, and first of all, the, the, the obvious answer and the right answer is the one that you already talked about, and that's Austin Matthews, but Mark Matthews here for a couple of seconds. Is there someone else on this roster? We'll, we'll close with this one. Um, Luke, is there someone on this roster that really holds your curiosity in the offseason? Matthews is the obvious one, and we all know that, but is there someone else as well? Yeah, it's Mitch Marner, 100%. Because once Matthews, uh, and, you know, credit Judd Moldaver, but once he secured the no-movement clause for the final year of his deal, when Mar- it came time for yeah. Marner to negotiate, he said, I don't just want a full no-move clause for the final year of my deal. I want the final two years so that I'm mine kicks in on the same day as Matthews. And I think that is extremely fascinating because if July 1 hits and, and Marner isn't moved by then, then, both these guys are for sure here. And what a massive decision for a brand-new general manager to have to make. And maybe it's as simple as, 
hey, let's just keep running back the core. But I think this offseason, more than ever, there's uh, a sense amongst the media, amongst the fan base, that maybe just running it back isn't good enough anymore. And I think that feeling was uh, piled onto by Dubas himself in his final press conference as a Maple Leaf saying everything's on the table. So I, I think Mitch Marner's future is really fascinating here because he would, he, he would return more in a trade than Nylander would, uh, but he's the local guy. He, he's still in his prime. He's a heck of a player. It's a trade you could absolutely lose. So how the, the new guy deals with Marner has, has my attention greatly. Fascinating one. If you got 15 seconds, uh, I'd love your thoughts on where Matt Murray ends up. Maybe it's in Toronto next season. You have 15 seconds on Matt Murray? Um, try to trade him uh, with, with a sweetener or buy him out. Joseph Wall is part of this team. He can't clear waivers. Yeah. He has to be part of the team. Samsonoff played great. He, he's the easy choice. I wouldn't even, and if you're not going to go with Samsonoff, let me throw Connor Hellebuck out there. Make a trade. Juicy. Juicy to finish <laughs> off the week. Uh, Luke, always appreciate it, pal. Have a great weekend, bud. Okay, you too, Jeff. Take care. The, the great Luke Fox from uh, Sportsnet.ca covering the Toronto Maple Leafs. So those questions still linger into the weekend. Uh, who's the next GM? Who's going to be the coach? And what does this roster look like? And will the new general manager have to make some significant decisions? Uh, okay, thanks to Luke Fox for stopping by. Devin Dubnik from the NHL Network. Daryl Sador, uh, former NHL defenseman, Stanley Cup champion, co-owner of the Kamloops Blazers. Kamloops hosting the Memorial Cup. Kamloops opens up tonight. Uh, against the Quebec Ramparts and Elliot Friedman, who kicks it off each and every day on this show. Thank you, General Nick. You're awesome. Lance Kennedy, ditto, and Matt Marchese as well. Thank you for always trying to make this show better. And as I always say, sorry, I had other plans. Have a great weekend. Saturday night, Hockey Night in Canada, pregame 730 with your host, Ron McLean. Puck drops, game five, just after eight. Enjoy. Back Monday.